Father, we thank you that you are with us and teaching us through your word uh, who we are to be in the world and how we are to live. Father, that you, through your apostle Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, uh, you're reminding us about what it means to be a people who live and act in step with the truth of the gospel. And I pray today that as we record, that as we think about you together, we would turn our hearts to worshiping you in the end, that this sermon, this time together would be uh, a way to worship you. So would you take control uh, of my heart and my mind and the minds and hearts of those listening? And would you bless us this morning and at this time? Amen. It's good to join you again and be with you. Uh, I, I want to ask an opening question. My opening question this morning uh, is, when was the last time you changed your mind about something important to you? When was the last time your convictions in relation to Jesus shifted, swerved, varied away from Jesus? And what was the source of this change in thinking about him? Would you consider taking a moment in reflection? You can actually pause this recording and take a moment and reflect and write down. Um, what is something that has shifted for you in some way in relation to the gospel, in relation to Christ? Um, and what was the source of that? I'd love to hear about that if you want to send me a message and you, or phone me and talk about it. I'd love to know. The aim this morning, though, is twofold. First, that a proper Christ-centered theology of justification and righteousness disrupts and delivers us out of the schemes of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that, so that's part one, that this theology of justification and righteousness delivers us out of the uh, schemes of the world, the flesh, and the devil to divert us from Jesus. And the second, that that has really practical implications for leadership and the church uh, to overcome uh, the forces that might draw us away from Jesus and his gospel. So the text before us has three different uh, sources or three different causes that might draw us away from believing in and living in step with the truth of the gospel. The first is false teachings. The second is following flawed humans. And the third is fear or fears. Yet what we see in this letter and in this text in particular is Paul remains unmoved by all three of these influences. In other words, the gospel he holds, the gospel of Christ, has been unshaken by all the different causes of potential swerving away from the gospel of Jesus. Recall how he identifies himself in Galatians 1.1. His calling and his teachings are rooted in and through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Today I want to explore how Jesus leads us through the example of Paul to remain committed to the person of Christ, his death and resurrection, our justification and our righteousness, even in the face of false teachings, flawed humans, and fears. So before looking at the practical implications of how the church is to live and move and correct each other in the world, I want to look at the theology of justification and, rec or, and righteousness, 
only briefly. First, justification. Justification by faith in Christ, his death and his resurrection. Galatians 2, 15 through 16 read, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Amen. So, I don't know if it stood out to you, but if it didn't, let me re-emphasize it. Three times in this short section of scripture, by the works of the law, no one is justified. Justification is not by the works of the law. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you see the point? Does it, does it resonate with you? Is, has it sunk in? Nothing we can do No works of the law will ever justify us in God's mind, in God's heart. None of it will allow him to be more willing to accept us. The works of the law might be paraphrased. You're wondering, well, how does that work? We don't really follow um, a law in our society that guides us and informs us. So the works of the law might be paraphrased or interpreted in today's uh, languages, things like self uh, improvement or you know, moral integrity or doing the right things to gain favor. Yet the works of sinful humanity, uh, even if by sets of fixed moral rules or techniques or methods or hard labor or careful consideration, cannot and can never work up or ascend to impress God. Humanity strives to improve or attain God's recognition in vain. God in Christ did not and does not seek uh, for our own human ascent. Rather, he condescends or he descends to us. Maybe one of our biggest problems in understanding the implications of justification is that we want to progress. We want to move up. We want to ascend. We want to earn God's favor. We are always struggling to climb the ladder of progress and achievement. He, however, Jesus Christ, humbled himself and came low. He works in the opposite direction so that we don't have to work up to him. We don't have to build a scheme of progress to earn his favor or his love. To trust our own strength Our own goodness, our own wisdom, is a perilous thing, writes John Kelvin. Let us search the scriptures with humility, praying that we may never lose light or lose the light of the gospel. Lord, increase our faith, he writes. The whole issue of the works of the law, which Paul three times emphasizes, will not justify you, is to remind us that human strength alone is always inadequate to please the God of Scripture, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. But you might ask, because of the society we live in, why not? Why are our efforts perilous, to use Kelvin's word, and profitless before God? Because everything I do and everything you do 
has been tainted and marred and in some way informed by sin and the evil of the human heart. This text has been the one most on my heart in the last few weeks. From Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. There is, I don't mediate myself to the holy God and Father of all things. But Christ does, and Christ himself is God. It, 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 the implications of this are far-reaching. We, uh, but it's, it's incredible. Justification is part of God's mediatorial work, which brings us into fellowship and relationship with God our Father. So that's justification. We cannot justify ourselves, but Christ has justified us. He has, he has declared us before God, those who have faith in him, so justification by faith, to be acceptable to God on the basis of Christ's death and Christ's death alone. And that justification leads to righteousness. And so what? let me read to you Galatians 2, 20 to 21. I'll do so slowly and maybe we can meditate on it as we go. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Righteousness means being in right relationship with God. Those accepted by God the Father on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ are welcomed into relationship with him to experience the full benefits of that relationship. This is not merely a trivial welcoming us into some kind of vague emotion, but into the actual love of God, which, is, um, which has been shared for all eternity in him, in his Trinitarian self. John Christofston writes on the verse, And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Something that I think is just so profoundly important. He says this, Paul takes the whole act of redemption and focuses it onto himself, applying the whole weight of the love of God as if his death was as much for all humankind as for the individual who has been saved. Isn't that great? It, it is as if the death which Christ died, as much as it was for all humankind, was as much for the individual believer being saved. And that, that echo is in the very heart of Paul's theology, that that one who died for all creation, for all human beings, died for me. It's a specificity and personalization of belief. So could we live, maybe, could I live, it's my prayer, and could we live so radically and personally shaped by the faith in the Son of God who died for us, who loved us, and who gave himself for us? 
See, the story of Jesus and the story of our own righteousness is a story of God the Father welcoming us into his house, not on the basis of our own justifiably good works or the justifiability of our own good works. They are nothing. They're useless. They cannot justify three times repeated by Peter or by Paul. When I think about this, I think about my house. If I welcomed you into my house, and if I made you stay in my house for a number of days, what you'd instantly recognize is that there are moments of absolute chaos. There are moments of, uh, of, of just profound noise. But I often think in those moments of the church, See, the children in my life have not been accepted into my house because they met any kind of qualification. They weren't the most moral, they weren't the most well-behaved, they weren't the most academic. They have been welcomed in purely because of the love Chelsea and I felt called to give to others, to those who needed it, because God had so richly blessed us. It is so much the same. We regardless of our abilities, our skills, our moral integrity, our strength, our fortitude, have been welcomed into the kingdom of God because of the love of God, which has been made known in the cross, but which existed before that. What does John 3.16 say? It says, for God so loved the world that he was moved to die for it, to give himself up for it. So the love of God welcomes us, and the love of God is the reward of righteousness. We live into the love of God. Does that shock you at all? Does that weight weigh on you? It might be worth just meditating on these words so that it starts to again. I really sensed that as I was preparing the sermon, just the weight of God's love for me and for us. So that's the theology it's not as maybe long articulate as it could be, but it's theology, the theology of justification. We can't do it on our own. Christ has, by his death, justified us and said, you are accepted. And righteousness is you are accepted into a relationship, a proper relationship with God the Father and the Trinity to experience the benefits of love or just to experience the love we were made for. And so now the correction of Peter by Paul. I want to frame it around these words, which form the basis of Paul's critique or correction of Peter and uh, the other Christian uh, Jewish leaders. It's this, you are not walking in step with the gospel. These realities, so great to contemplate and consider in prayer, Yet, our human hearts are all prone to wander, to swerve, to divert our hearts away from the thoughts of Jesus, if even subtly. Peter and the Galatians and the disciples of Jesus all demonstrate this tendency to us. The Galatians have been diverted from the gospel by believing in the false teachers the false teachers, as, as I think we've already covered, are those of a particular group. The circumcision group, the influential people, the, the people of James, who've come in and said, there is still something more to be added to the work of Christ. And they came and started to undermine the work of Paul. 
and Paul's advance of the gospel in, in Corinth or in Galatia. The actions of Peter in his pulling back from meeting with the Gentiles has shifted and it's shifted because of fear. You'll remember that Peter in Acts 10 had a profound revelation of what God defined as clean and unclean. That is, God through Jesus revealed to him the, the throwing out, the abandoning of the idea that there are certain foods and people who are clean and unclean. And I want to read to you a part of Acts 10. It's Acts 10, 27 and 29. And, and this is once Peter has, has moved uh, in obedience to God and moved in uh, and responded to the request of a Gentile Cornelius to visit his house. And this is what Peter says. And as, sorry, and as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for Jews to associate with or even visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask you then, why have you sent for me? See, in that text of Acts, just quickly the redefining of Peter's idea of cleanliness allowed him to go into a place, into a house, with people who had once been considered unclean. It's amazing. It's profound. It's an, it's an amazing shift of Jesus calling Peter into something greater. And yet here in the text before us, in Paul's confrontation of Peter, we learn that Peter, because of the fear of the men from James, withdraws to show the superiority of his cultural identity and the exclusion of those not considered clean. So what does Paul do? Paul, the transformed uh, leader in Judaism, what does he do? Notice that Paul does not directly confront Peter by saying, you are committing the sin of racism, though he absolutely was. But rather, or he, he doesn't pull, pile on a bunch of blame on him. But rather what he says is, you are not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Have you ever experienced this in your own soul, in your own heart? That what you claim to be or believe about Jesus is not being demonstrated in your actions. This correction gives me so much hope for the church. That the correction that Paul, the pastor, Paul, the transformed by Christ's resurrection and death and person offers to Peter is the correction of, listen, you're not walking in accordance with what you believe about the gospel and what I believe about the gospel. You're not walking in truth with the gospel. This is so much better to heal the wounds and divisions of racism in our culture than anything else. It is so much more powerful than the sociology I am fed on almost every day in my university degree. Do you understand why? 
Because the gospel of Christ has won us our justification before God, not because we belong to a superior group. It has won us relationship with God, full access to his love, not because we belong to the right group, but because God's love propelled up himself to condescend to us and to give up everything he had for love of us so that we could do likewise. No one will ever be motivated because they feel shamed into it. But, oh my goodness, the gospel calls us into such a deep love of the other. And it refuses to let us think of our group as more superior to any other group. God, would you forgive those of us who have let our group identity define us? And the final thing in which we see the, the, uh, a shifting or a turning away from Jesus is the Jews, even Barnabas, who were gospel-abiding, believing people, went along hypo- hypocritically and uncritically following Peter's withdrawal from meeting with the Gentiles. The actions of the flawed human of Peter uh, were followed uncritically by Barnabas and others, and they too were diverted from walking in step with the truth of the gospel. So how about us? This is just to conclude. So that's the the practical implication for the church is the gospel must be constantly informing what we do and how we live. So how about us? Disciples of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus in the 21st century city of Vancouver. Has 2,000 years of Christian history done anything to prevent us from swerving away from Jesus. No. Our hearts have the same tendencies. Listen, if you don't know it, there are many false teachers. And even using false teachers sometimes has this little association of like, I'm just think everyone's out to get you. <laughs> out to make you think something else about the world. Out to make you question the gospel all the time. But it's true, there are so many people, there are so many groups that attempt to contort and confine and control the dynamics of the gospel into a narrow, decisive political party. Or tempted to reduce the gospel along lines of what's right or wrong or proper moral behavior. And to slowly, in some way, etch Jesus out of the picture the false teachers both within and outside the church remain present. Even today. Fear of groups all the more present today than ever. There's even more, they're even more entrenched. Living now in a global world where everyone's interconnected. I seem to notice increasingly a uh, groups forming and building a base on two things, shared experience and shared enemies. The danger of blaming and exclusion are rapidly increasing in our world, I think, not decreasing. The dangers of fearing what other groups might think of us or our actions could well destroy our social currency or our reputation. Mind you, in the West, that's relatively maybe insignificant. In other parts of the world, not falling in line with the dominant reality or the powerful groups could well lead to death or imprisonment. So what groups, I wonder, do you and I, or do you, fear upsetting or disappointing? 
Or what groups do you often blame for the issues of our world? Do you lay upon the blame? So we still experience, certainly, false teachers. We still experience fear of what other groups might think of us. And we also today might well follow flawed uh, individuals, flawed leaders, and follow them too closely and with no, criti- with no critical filtering of the gospel that we too are led astray in our actions. So we, the church, live in the world, and we live in the church. The world and the church both filled with people who are prone to error, who are prone to, for whatever reason, well, for a forgetting of the truth of the gospel in their daily life, walk contrary to it or walk out of step with it. So let me, in conclusion, just reaffirm Paul's posture of prayer, Paul's posture of commitment to reinforcing his life at every moment with the fundamental realities of justification and righteousness. Jesus is not looking, let me remind you, for a behavioral modification. He is not after your perfection or your stuff. He desires that we receive by faith his justifying work, which has welcomed us into a right relationship with himself, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And to do that, we must die to self-protection. We must die to self-trust that our own negotiation with the groups and people around us might actually lead to something greater. God is calling us today to desire his love completely, that we can die to our desire to find security in other people, in groups, uh, and in uh, and in changing our behavior to fit the group's requirement or standard. So if you're feeling like there's that something in your life at the beginning that I had you reflect on, something that has diverted you, that's shifted you, that's, that's swayed you from walking in step with the gospel, the good news is that the gospel message of, of open relationship through the death of Jesus Christ remains available to you today. It remains available for you to walk into his love and into his grace. For, uh, and keep this text in mind, Galatians 1.10. For I am now, for if I were seeking the approval of man, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please humanity, I would not be a servant of Christ. Recall the words of Paul. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We must live by faith and applying the mediating work of Jesus Christ to our life so that we would know so deeply in our being that God is for us and not against us, that he died for us and for all humanity. Let me read you to end and then I'll pray. Another quote from John Christostom. The language of me that Paul uses when he says Christ gave himself up for me and loved me, the language of me teaches that each individual justly owes a great debt of gratitude to Christ as if he had come for their sake alone. For Christ would not have grudged this his condescension, though but for one, so that the measure of his love for each is as great as to the whole world. Jesus, thank you that your love for me 
and for each individual listening is as great as the love you gave for the whole world. Would our hearts be so shaped by that reality every morning that the fear of aligning ourselves with groups who set a particular requirement to be justified in them would fade away? Father, would the love of God being born on our hearts be so strong and profound that you are the example we follow each day? totally and completely, not the flawed example of human beings. And God, would the love of Christ demonstrated toward us so profoundly shape us that we always walk in line with the truth of your gospel, even when it's hard, when it's difficult, and when strong political groups or when strong moral groups rage against him. Father, have mercy on us to give us the faith needed to live well in the world and to live as you would have us live. Amen.